of the righteous. Those at the table with him heard this. He said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his son to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But the light began to make excuses. The first said, I have to be but please me. Another said, I waited, please excuse me. Still, so I can't come. The servant came to them, then the owner of the house became angry. But he said, Oh, I'd say poor cripple, the blind, and the lame. Ah, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go to come in, so that my house will be full. I do always have a of my And turning to them, he said, If any of them is not father, wife, and children, masters, yes, he might, Susan cannot be, and cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. What's it? Estimate the cost, it? For if you lay the fire, you're not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build what finish. Also, a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with ten men to oppose the one coming against him with twenty thousand? If he is not able, he will send a delegate. The other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is but vidless canon. If from the manure pile, it is as is to hear. Now I realize that uh, pastors kind of live in, in some ways, a very different world from the people of our congregation. Things that uh, bother me, like boxes in my backyard, tend not to bother other people. But uh, yesterday, my Twitter feed was blowing up with accusations of plagiarism and some feeble attempts to excuse it in some pretty famous churches. The long and short of the story was that Preacher A heavily borrowed from Preacher B in a sermon with the permission of Preacher B. And both of them quoted Preacher C, which you would probably know if I gave you his name. The problem is, is that Preacher A did not tell his congregation, I'm quoting Preacher B. And so some got all up in arms that when I come to church, I expect a fresh sermon that the Holy Spirit has given to my pastor, not just something that you've downloaded off the internet and that you're giving to us. So to eliminate any possibility that you would find today's outline or portions of the outline online, if you did a Google search, let me clearly express to you 
that I have consulted some other outlines and worked them and put them together in the message that I'm about to give you this morning. In other words, um, I've borrowed from outlines, but the meat on the outline comes from me. In other words, what we are about to eat was cooked by me, although I started with someone else's recipe. And I think every cook would understand that. The stringer is full of fish that I caught. However, I used the jig that was recommended by somebody else. So just so you know there's no plagiarism, I think we've all found ourselves in that situation, haven't we? Caught fish with somebody else's jig? Made a meal with somebody else's recipe? Well, today's text, Luke chapter 14, the second part of the chapter, uh, covers two big questions. The first question is this. Who is capable of being a disciple And the second I'm going to give to you when we get to that part of the outline so that you can fill in that blank. Number one, first we see who is capable of being a disciple. For we see that Jesus forces none. He's disappointed by some, but all are invited to the banquet. In verses 16 and 17, we see that an invitation is sent out. The invitations had already gone out with the save the date. And now the head of the house says, everything's ready. Go get the guest list and tell them it's time to come in. It is a simple invitation. The invitation is simply, come. Come to the banquet. It's not only a simple invitation, but he states the invitation, that the state of the invitation is that everything is ready. The table is set. The linens are there. All of the cushions around the table are ready. Come, because everything is ready for you. Salvation is not something that you need to earn. It's not something that you need to manufacture. It's not something that you need to contribute. The free gift of God's salvation is available. Everything is ready. Just come. Come and receive. But the timing of the invitation should not surprise anybody. See, they'd already been invited. They'd already been told a wedding is coming. And as soon as things are ready, we'll let you know. It's like you've been to the baby shower. You've been to the gender reveal. You should not be surprised when you find out that they're in the delivery room. But this is a wedding. It's not a birth. As he says, don't be surprised. Come. Everything is now ready. But I also notice that he stresses the invitation. For look with me in the verse. Come now. Everything is ready. There are some of us who want to come to Christ later. I'm going to do this and then I'll come to Christ. I'm going to chase this idea, then I'll come to Christ. I'm going to sow these wild oats, then I'll come to Christ. But the master of the banquet says, come, everything is ready, so come now, as he sends the invitation. 
But as the invitation or the second invitation goes out, I see in verses 18 through 20 that the invitation is snubbed. You know, excuses are common. Everybody has excuses. They usually stink. But excuses are common. For I, I notice when I look here at verse 18, it says, But they all alike began to make excuses. They all had their own excuse, but everyone had excuses. When I think about the commonality of excuses, I wonder if you may have used some of these. The website careerbuilder.com offers the five best excuses for being late for work. Some of them may not work here in Chase County because, number one, 51% of the people who are late blame traffic. I don't know that we can blame traffic unless you got stuck behind a tractor in Chase County. 31% of the people say, I overslept. That's honest. The third most popular excuse for being late is there was bad weather. And some of you called this morning to see if the water was rising so that, to know if we could get to church or not. Traffic, oversleeping, bad weather. One third of the, or a fourth of the people, 23%, actually says, I was just too tired to get up. At least we're honest. You, you got to give credit for being honest. And the fifth most popular excuse for being late to work is, well, I forgot something and had to go back home after it. So there you go, five excuses. You may have used one of these or heard several of these in your life. On the other hand, an earlier survey uh, found these bizarre excuses that you might want to avoid. And I'll just share with you six of them. One bizarre excuse for being late for work. A zebra was running down the highway and held up traffic. It actually turned out to be true. A zebra running down the highway. A, a second one, I don't know if this is bizarre. You might not want to use this one. My cat got stuck in the toilet. Number three, I fell asleep in my car after I got to work. Been there? Uh, um, bizarre excuse number four that you may want to avoid. I accidentally put super glue in my eye instead of contact lens solution, and I had to go to the emergency room. I like number five. There was a hole in the roof that caused rain to fall on the alarm clock so it didn't go off. And the sixth, Excuse, bizarre excuse that you may not want to use if you're ever late for work. It, it's my favorite standby. I got a hairbrush stuck in my hair. See, it, everyone has excuses. And sometimes they seem to make sense. Other times, it's just like, just be honest with me. And we see here in Verse um, 18, they all alike began to make excuses. Jesus is inviting people of the world to come to drink from the well of living water, and many have excuses. I wonder, would you consider these just excuse, just reasons, or do you consider these just excuses? In verse 18, the first man uses the excuse 
of possessions. The man had just purchased a piece of property, and the, the most important thing in life is not how much am I worth. The most important thing in life is am I saved? But sometimes we get distracted by possessions. I've got a new piece of property, and I just want to know what it looks like when the sun rises on my property. The excuse of possession. The second man who offered an excuse offered, I, I, I'm calling it the excuse of profession. He, he wanted to be perceived as professional by his peers. This man says, <clears throat> I just bought five pair of oxen. I can't come to your party. After all, I, I've got to supervise the staff. If I come to your feast, I've got ten beasts and five servants that are just going to be standing around doing nothing. I am too important to come to the feast. I've got to take care of all of these responsibilities because I'm important. So he uses self-importance, his profession, as an excuse not to come to God's banquet. And thirdly, the excuse of people. A man says, I just got married. I can't come to, you. I can't come to your feast. I, I, I've got a new wife at home. Newsflash, she's still going to be at home after the wedding. You, if, you, if you did it to, till death do us part, you've got plenty of time to spend with your wife. See, the excuses, the reasons... My possessions, my profession, and other people. Often those are the excuses that we hear from people when we invite them to receive the free gift of salvation. Oh, that's just not important to me. My possessions are more important than, than church stuff. What about my reputation? I, I, I don't want to be considered a holy roller or a religious fanatic. What, what would that do to my reputation in the community? After all, I'm a professional person and people respect me. Or the excuse of people. What would people think if I became religious? The invitation is snubbed for three very common and popular reasons. And so the man responds... He says, fine, if they don't want to come to my banquet, we will spread the invitation even further. In verses 21 through 23, I see grace. As the, the master of the banquet says, if they don't want to come, I will give invitations to others. And so first we see the direction of his grace. The man says, if the invited guests do not want to come to the banquet, fine. Let's go out. We'll find the poor, the disabled, the blind, the lame, those who can't get here themselves, those who will never be able to repay an invitation. Go out to them and invite them. Why? Because my desire, the desire of grace, is that my house would be filled. The direction is to those who cannot help himself, and the desire is God wants his house to be filled. Many people think of God as the angry curmudgeon that can't wait to send sinners to hell. The exact opposite is true. 
He is sending out messengers compelling, please spend eternity with me. Come to me through Christ. His grace goes to those who can't help himself. His grace goes out so that his house may be full. And the drive of grace is compel them to come in. Don't just offer an invitation, but compel them to come in. Some of you have um, children and teenagers in your home. And to get them to church this morning was probably more than an invitation. It was probably a little bit more than, it's time to get up, do you want to go to church? I'm guessing, as I look across here, there was a little bit of compelling that happened in some bedrooms this morning. Come on, it's time to go! You know, here in Kansas... We, we see the weather alerts, we see the watches, we see the warnings all the time. And this can kind of make us callous to the intensity that is often communicated on the news. You know, we here in Kansas, when we hear the conditions are favorable for strong weather, it's like, yeah, like yesterday and tomorrow too. So if we hear that the the conditions are favorable, we may cancel our picnic plans. But if we hear a cell has formed and it's headed east, we get a little bit more concerned. We may check the weather app. We may tune into the channel. Um, Where's the front going to go? But if we hear the sirens... And someone says, a funnel is on the ground and headed your direction. We might feel compelled to take shelter. I said might because we're Kansans. But at the risk of becoming the boy who cried wolf, Jesus is calling us to increase the intensity of our evangelism. Not that we're just giving a weather alert to our neighbors. Not just that we tell them, hey, the the conditions are favorable for the end of the world. But that we would compel them. A funnel is on the ground, coming our direction. Take cover immediately. It's that intensity of compel them to come in so that my house may be full. That's That's the desire of our God. Not to cast others out, but to have us safely within. The invitation spreads because some people had too many excuses. And finally, in verse 24, we actually see that, fine, I gave you the invitation, I welcomed you, you had excuses, so your invitation is suspended. But there's plenty of room from all the others. And and I actually believe that this is kind of a a hint of Jesus coming to the Jewish people and many of the Jewish people rejecting him. And so we we see in the day of Pentecost that the gospel opens up and the Gentiles, those dirty dog Gentiles, are allowed into the kingdom. And so I believe Jesus is kind of hinting at that. Remember, as Luke is writing this, 
The gospel of Luke has already happened. The book of Acts has already happened. And then Luke is actually recording it for us. And so Luke knows the gospel is going to spread to the Gentiles and people are going to get saved from every nation and every tongue and every tribe. And then Luke looks back and he sees Jesus saying, hey, if you don't want to come to my banquet, fine. I'll open up the invitation to them, those who can't do it themselves. And there's room at my table for them. See, it's not enough to be invited to the banquet. We must taste at the banquet. We've got to take it personally. And what will you do with his invitation? If you come to Jesus, you will be part of his eternal feast in heaven. If you do not, you will be part of an eternal funeral in hell. The invitation is there. And before it is suspended, now is the time to come to the table. See, one day Jesus was talking with a group of of people who had a lot of religious knowledge. They could quote the Bible. They could debate how different rabbis interpreted certain verses. They were very religious. But they didn't have saving faith. And their religion was worthless in the end. As a matter of fact, John chapter 8 describes it this way. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus is telling the people, now is the time not just to be invited, but to taste of the banquet. Make it personal as we come to him now because everything is set. So I see that we actually have who is capable of being a disciple. All of us are capable of coming to the banquet. But Jesus moves from the banquet to a barter situation as he poses the second question. The second question is, what is the cost of being a disciple. Now, some have accused Jesus of a little bit of a bait and switch. You've just said, come to the free banquet. It's available. Everything's ready. Everybody come to the banquet. Now, Jesus is about to say, hey, if you want to follow after me, here's the cost. Be ready to pay. Some have seen the, the breadth of grace in verse 23, and then they read the cost described in verse 27. They say, wait a minute, Jesus is manipulating people here. He invites them to a free banquet, and then he says, it's going to cost you. But notice in verse 25, it says that Jesus turned. And Luke uses this word turn to talk about a a turn in the plot of Jesus' mission. From this moment until the cross, Jesus is going to be speaking about what it means to follow after him in uncompromising terms. See, it's not so much that Jesus has changed his message as the message that he had been communicating with his inner circle. He now begins to proclaim that same message to the public. 
See, the public were coming to the free fish sandwiches. They were coming to the healing services. They were coming to the lectures by the seashore. But now Jesus says, the things I've been telling my inner circle, I now tell you. If you are going to follow after me, if you are going to become like me, it is going to cost you. Notice in verses 26 to 33 that the three excuses that we saw for not coming to the banquet become three obstacles to following Christ. What were the three excuses that we saw in the earlier portion? I have too many possessions. I'm worried about my professional reputation and my personal relationships. And here in verses 26 through 33, we have three obstacles to following after Christ. In verse 28, or I'm sorry, in verse 26, it's the response to a man who thought his marriage exempted him from coming to the banquet. In verse 26, the guy says, man, my my wife is too important, I can't come. And in verse 26, Jesus says, if you don't hate father, mother, and and I believe Jesus is intentionally using shocking language to get their attention. But what he's saying is, is relationships can be an excuse for coming to the banquet. They can also be an obstacle to following after Christ. Because what was the first commandment? To love your God only. Serve none other. God comes first. So Jesus says, God's got to come first. Any of those other relationships have to fall into place under God coming first. Then in verse 27... It's the response to the man who was so concerned with his profession or his reputation. He wanted to be, he wanted to establish his significance in the community. I've got five pair of oxen. I've got servants to run these oxen. And to the person who is too concerned with his reputation or his profession to establish his significance in the community, Jesus says concern for your reputation or your standing among your peers is going to get in the way of following Christ. You've got to be willing to take up your cross and follow me. If your reputation is more important to you then obedience to Christ is going to get in the way of your discipleship. And then verse 33 is a response to the man who valued his property. I just bought a piece of property and I need to check it out. What do we read in verse 33? Therefore, anyone who does not renounce all, he cannot be my disciple. So the very three excuses, money, profession, and people, become the very three obstacles to following after Christ. Our possessions, our reputation, and other people. 
When we exchange the things of earth for the things of God in verse, 40, verse 33, we are living out the Jim Elliot quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so Jesus is offering, and he says, are you willing to pay the cost? Here's the cost. Christ has to be more important than our relationships. He has to be more important than our reputation. And he has to be more important than our stuff. So some of you are asking, whoa, back up, preacher. That, that, that cost, that's too high. I, I, I don't mind coming to church for an hour on Sundays. But to sacrifice my reputation, to sacrifice the things that I like? You know, hearing Jesus' story about an abandoned building project or a military defeat due to understaffing may lead a person to conclude that the cross of verse 27 and the loss of relationships is too costly. Is the cost too high? There was a woman who was touring in Europe, and she cabled her husband the following message. Have found a wonderful bracelet. Price, $75,000. May I buy it? And her husband immediately responded with the message, No, price too high. However, the telegraph operator missed one small detail in the transmission. The signal for a comma after the word no. So the wife in Europe received the reply, no price too high. Elated by the good news, she bought the bracelet when she returned to the United States and showed the new bracelet to her shocked husband, he filed a lawsuit against a telegraph company and won. Now, Snopes says that's a made-up story. They've not been able to find the lawsuit against a telegraph company. But the story is, from that point on, telegraph rules required operators to spell out the punctuation rather than simply use symbols because no price was too high to avoid the same mistake. And some of us may think that taking up my cross and following after Christ is a price too high. As Jesus wept in the garden before his crucifixion, did he consider the cost of saving your soul too high? If he willingly paid the price of Calvary for you, is it not reasonable for him to ask us to be willing to pay the price of discipleship? When we realize the price that he paid for us, it is only reasonable that we would reply, no price too high, rather than no price too high. Romans chapter 12 
in the New Living Translation says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. And when we realize what He did for us, we reply, No price too high. And then after we decide that the price of discipleship is worth it, he then encourages and empowers us to renounce all, to bear our cross, and to follow him with undistracted devotion. Because Philippians 2 says, for after we decide to pay the price, God is working in you to give you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And then Luke concludes the challenge to discipleship with a reminder that we have one purpose. You have one job. Perhaps you have seen some of these examples of people who messed up the one thing they needed to get right. You had one job. Or maybe this one. You only had one job. It's only four letters. You can't get them in the right order? To, to those of us who are not OCD, but highly organized, this probably just gets on your very last nerve. That one red brick that needs to be in the other place. You only had one job. Couldn't you get that right? Or I, I think the best one is this. Notice where the sidewalk is. And notice where the driveway is. I'm sorry, folks, you only had one job. And, and Jesus says, your one job is to be salt. But if salt loses its seasoning, what good is it? And my friend, this morning you have one job. Jesus says, just as salt has one purpose, he's saying to us, you have one job. And that job is to become like Christ. To allow him to redeem you and to transform you and to conform you to his image that we become like him. Because Ephesians 4 says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. To grow up into Christ. Our final song as we move into the Lord's Supper this morning is intentionally a somber one. We've talked about the great banquet that he invites us all to attend. We've talked about the cost of being a disciple and the one job that he gives to us. As we prepare to share the bread and the juice, I'm going to ask that no one move around. We'll, we'll distribute the elements a little bit later. But to somberly reflect. To ask myself, 